George Whitfield was out in a field and the whole town would come out to hear him speak. He didn't have a microphone of any kind or amplification, but he'd speak to crowds of thousands and they would say, you know, this is probably a bit of a myth, but they would say things like, they, they say his voice could carry a country mile. You know, you, you, your voice would have to be pretty strong to be in a field preaching to thousands of people and have them all hear you. That's pretty substantial. It says that he preached 18,000 sermons in his 34 years of ministry, which is 1.378946, I think it is, sermons a day. And you can have the 8946 decibels when you've preached 18,000 sermons. I think you're allowed them. And uh, in 34 years of ministry, and he preached the gospel to approximately 10 million people in his lifetime. Amazing, eh? Amazing. But the question that I have about George Whitfield is this is what drew the crowds? Why did they come and hear him speak? Because I've seen photos of George Whitfield and it ain't pretty. He's, he's not a good looking man. Plus he was extremely cross-eyed. So, you know, it's a bit awkward to have eye contact with him. It's, it wasn't his good looks that got people to come out and hear him. They say that he preached like a cage fighter and they nicknamed him Thunder and Lightning. That's a pretty cool way. Eh? That's like Thunder and Lightning. And uh, that's what Trinity calls my muscles. That's true. I have a license for these guns. Um so how did Whitfield have that kind of effect? How did, it, how did he do this? What drove him? What, what drew the crowds? What enabled this man to do what he did? Well, he says it came down to one defining conversation that he had with a friend of his that was an actor. And this is what he said to his friend, who was an actor, and George Whitfield calls this his as-if moment. He said to his friend, he said, what is the reason you actors on stage can affect your congregations with the speaking of things imaginary as if they are real? While in the church, while we in the church speak of things that are real, which our congregations only received as if they're imaginary. Let that sink in for a wee while. He's saying to him, how come you talk about things that just aren't real and yet people that watch you act walk away like it is real? How many of you have watched a movie and then been unable to sleep because, come on, you think an alien's going to come up out of your belly during the night? It's just bad pizza. It's not real. And he's saying, how come you can talk about things that aren't real, imaginary, and people take it as true, yet we, the church, we talk about things that are true, but our congregations just go away and think, oh, that's just imaginary. And his friend's response, the actor's response was this. He said, the reason is very plain. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they are real, and you in the pulpit speak of things that are real as if they're imaginary. You people in the pulpit speak of things that are true as if they're imaginary. 
as if they're imaginary. George Whitefield said when that hit him right between the eyes, he said, hold on a sec, why are we talking about truth as if it's not true when it is true, and yet these people that believe in stuff that aren't true speak about it as if it is true, and people believe them that it's true even though it's not true. What has the church done wrong that we talk about the truth, but people just walk away thinking, that's nice, but it never happens. It's not real. It's imaginary. It's a perfect world scenario, but it never really happens for me. And so he went away and he changed his preaching style and that's when he stopped preaching in the churches and started going to the fairgrounds and the fields and he became a cage fighter because he said this, I will never be a preacher of a velvet voice, but I am therefore going to be an as-if preacher for the rest of my life. As if what I am preaching is true. And this man went out and changed his style of preaching, changed the way that he reached people, and he spoke about the truth as if it was true. And 10 million people in his lifetime heard the truth as if it was true. You see, an as-if statement determines who we are and where we're going. When we get to this place where we're like, you know, if that is real, if, 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 as if, if that is real, then it determines where we go. It's your defining moment. It's your driving motivation. It's your why behind your every what. It's the thing that you would give uh, your life fighting to the grave for. Living as if is the seed that every success is born of. If you don't live your life as if what the Bible is saying is true, you'll never have success. If we don't believe that the seed, the Word of God is true, if we don't live as if it is, there'll be no success. There'll be no way. But the key to all of this, of course, is that the key is alignment. If those as-ifs don't line up with the truth of Scripture, then it's a house of cards and it's just going to fall. But if you're as is, if what you believe, if what you start to step out and live your life on is everything but is what the Scripture says, is the truth of the Word. And if you take that and you go, man, is, if this is true, then I'm going to live as if it's true, then all of a sudden you're going to see mountains move. You're going to see situations change. My as-if moment happened in a conference when I was in his conference and, and I was kind of getting bored with conferences. I was kind of getting bored with church. And I felt God speak to me and I, and I felt this as if moment come over me. What if church doesn't have to be the way that it's always been? What if conferences don't have to be the way they've always been? What if we do church different? What if we do conferences different? And I know we don't always do things that much different than everybody else does, but I'm always thinking, what can we do that's different? What can we do that's crazy? My dad got kicked out of a Baptist church as a pastor because he came up with this crazy concept. Instead of having church on a Sunday morning, we would go to the local markets and witness to people and then come back and talk about all the great testimonies of what God did in the marketplace and have church after the market, but we'll reach out at the market and he got kicked out of the church's pastor because, but we have to have church on Sunday mornings. I thought it would be better to reach our world on a Sunday morning. Could you imagine the hideousness of 10 to 12 witnessing the people and then from 10 to 12 
10, uh, for 12 to 2, celebrating what God did. I know you'd have to give up four hours of your life on a Sunday for Jesus who gave up his life on the cross. I know it's a big ask, but you know, that's the Baptist. I can say that because I was Baptist. If you've been Baptist, it's okay. Jesus loves everybody. I'm just joking. Far out. If we can't make fun of our Baptist friends, what is the point? No, just joking. And I had this as if moment, what if church could be different? What if church, I've always thought about my dad's idea and thought, ooh, what if we could do that one day? We need to just get them to change the markets from Saturdays to Sundays here. I don't want to drive to Pocono. <laughs> Sorry, if you live in Pocono, we love you too. But for me, it was God's, it was a dear, it was an as if dear moment. It was like, if you really believe that I'm all these things that you really believe, why don't, why don't you, I dare you, I dare you to do something different. You know, if there were departments in heaven, I would apply for the research and development department. Because part of my personality is, according to Strength Finder, is that I'm futuristic, which means that I'm always thinking future. If there's one thing, if you get close enough to me, the one thing that will frustrate the bejesus out of you is that I'm always thinking 10 years down the track. I don't actually live in the now. And if you ask me how we're going to do that 10 years down the track, I don't know, because it's not me. I'm, I'm just meant to come up with the ideas. That's the way I roll. It's part of my personality and part of my strengths is to be futuristic. But then there's a part of my theology that says this, that because I believe the church should be leading the way in excellence and creativity and thinking outside of the box, that I believe that those two things together, we should be leading the way in everything that we do. The church should be leading the way in music. The church should be leading the way in creativity. The church should be leading the way, not following behind. You are the head and not the tail. And, and so I, I'm always thinking, how can we do things better? How can we do things different? How can we do things a lot, lot different? And that's why one of our sayings here at, at CFC is this, is that you have permission to fail. You actually have permission to fail. I don't mind if you fail trying to do something for Jesus. I'd rather you fail trying to do something in a, as a faith than you sat there doing nothing. Because remember last week we talked about this, that a righteous life is not a life where you make sure you don't do the wrong thing. A righteous life is making sure you do the right thing. It's not living in fear, making sure I don't sin. It's stepping out and doing what God's called me to do and doing the right thing. And so I'd rather you stepped out and you failed. Why? Because we hold orthodox beliefs here. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Mary was a virgin, that Jesus died and rose again. We, we, the orthodox beliefs we hold, but we, can, we will never be anything but orthodox in how we present them. Because I just don't believe that as if faith fits into an orthodox box mindset of how God should do things. In Romans 8.12, there's this great scripture and it says this. It says, therefore, I hope you've been reading Romans 8. It's what this whole series is bound around. But Romans 8.12 says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh 
to live according to it. He's saying here that we have an obligation to Jesus to actually live in as if faith, as if what he says is true and to live that way. And I, I know the word obligation for a lot of us just stirs up wrong thought processes. It stirs up stuff that just doesn't come across really well. I want you to think, though, when it comes to obligation, it's, it's not a I have to do this, but it's a, I get to do this. Because of what he has done and what he's done for my life, And what he's done for my world, I am obligated. I get to do this. The the greatest obligation doubles as your greatest opportunity. Your greatest obligation doubles as your greatest opportunity because I'm surrendering my life to Jesus Christ and and I'm giving my all to him. It becomes my greatest opportunity to do something for him. Are you with me this morning? You see, the word... Obligation there means to be legally or morally bound. Legally, legally or morally bound. And we hear that and we don't really like that in the Christian world. But let me put it this way. This is what happens in a wedding. I've done lots of weddings. Love doing weddings far more than doing funerals. And in weddings, there's this thing. Do you take... Who wants to get married this morning? We can do it right here, right now. No, nobody, no takers. But there's this point where it says, do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded husband or wife, you know, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part? I've never once had anybody in all the weddings I've done not have a joyous I do at the end of it. I've never had anyone turn around and go, oh, hold on a sec. The health part, I'm all good with. Sickness, no. Rich, I'm all good for. Poor, I'm out of here. Nobody does that. Yet that is the legally binding part of your ceremony. It is a legal, uh, morally bound part when you enter into an obligation with one another in marriage and it's never a sad thing. It's always a joyous happiness and anticipation of a great future. And so what we need to understand is when we enter into covenant relationship with God, this moral legally bound, our problem is we tend to focus on the fact that we are now legally and morally bound to God and we forget the fact that when it comes to a marriage or when it comes to a covenant is that if I'm legally and morally bound to Trinity, she is legally and morally bound to me. So when I have an obligation to him, which means I'm legally and morally bound to Christ, it means that he has an obligation to me. That means that he is legally and morally bound to me. And so as much as I have to give my whole life to him, the covenant says that he has to give his whole life to me. Come on, are you with me this morning? We see when we live it as a faith, we understand that we don't actually lose anything in giving our life to Christ because for me to die is gain because I get all of his life when I come into covenant with him and I start to live in it as a faith that what he says is true and I give my life to him and I lay down my life for him, then I get all of his life on me and then all of his blessings become my blessing. And I don't have to worry about my future or my past or my present because I know that he is as bound to me as I am bound to him. That it is, it is 
just as important to him that our relationship succeeds as it is to me. And the great thing about covenant is this too, in case you don't realize this in marriage, is the covenant is this, is that I will do my part even when the other person doesn't do their part. You see, too many people have marriage contracts. I'll love you in that as long as you take the trash out and you do your fair share around the house. No, that's a contract. That's a contract. That means if you do this, I'll do that. It's a form of prostitution. But a covenant says, I will do for you even when you don't do for me. And so when we enter into this legally, morally binding contract, even if you haven't done for him what you're meant to do, he will do for you what you need regardless of what you do, because he's in covenant with you. He is obligated to you. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. What does that mean? Is that when we give our lives to him fully, when we fully surrender to him, and start living as if kind of faith, then every promise is our promise. It's a yes. And it's not even an amen from us. It's an amen from him. He seals it. He delivers it. He makes sure it comes. There are 10 ifs in Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8.31 to me is the greatest if of the whole entire chapter. And that is, in, it says that if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? I, I think it's one of the greatest ifs of the Bible. And I think too often we get on the wrong side of if. We have if onlys instead of what ifs. And we have I'm not too sure instead of as if. I reckon we get the if on the right side of our words. All of a sudden we start to have a different uh, understanding of what God has said. If God is for me, it's not a question of if God is for you, God is for you. And so when you have an as if kind of faith that you believe what he says, that he says about you, then you grab that scripture and you go, hold on, God is for me, nothing can be against me. It's not a if he's for me, maybe. It's a as if, if he's for me. But there's an if in verse 10 that I think is the ultimate as if, and it's Romans 8.10, and it says, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. What, what does the Scripture really mean? He's really saying this, you're no longer playing for yourselves, you're playing for someone else. You're no longer living this life for you, you're now living your life for Him. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, we now live our lives for the applause of nail-scarred hands. I now live my life for the applause of Jesus, not for the applause of anybody else, but for the applause of Jesus. I long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and so do you. But that only comes when we understand 
that I am now in this position where I'm legally and morally bound to you. It's no longer my life that I live, but it's your life through me. When we understand that he is now legally and morally bound to us, and that as much as I lay down my life for him, he lays down all of his life for me. It puts us in an incredibly strong position when we die to ourselves. Why? Because when we die to ourselves, and a dead person can't get offended. Man, people in church get way too offended way too easily. First of all, they're surprised when they get offended, when the scripture says, Jesus said, offenses will come. So let me just get something out. You will be offended. If you stay around here long enough, you will be offended. Either I will do it or someone will do it. Not intentionally, but you will be offended. Why? Because offense reveals the attitudes and the moral convictions of our heart. So you should never be offended when something offends you, but you should actually go, ooh, where's that coming from? What issue do I need to deal with here? You see, a dead person doesn't get offended. A dead person doesn't get angry. A dead person doesn't get upset. A dead person doesn't get depressed. Why? Because I'm no longer living, but Christ is living in me. The day we put our faith in Jesus Christ is the day our old self dies. In 1 Corinthians 15.31, it says, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or Jesus put it this way in Luke 9.23. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me daily. The, the key word in both of those scriptures is the word daily. There's a daily dying that we've got to do to ourselves, but there's a real freedom that comes in that daily death. Because here's the cool thing. When I die daily, I get resurrected daily. Oh, I don't think you heard that this morning. When you die daily to yourself, you get resurrected daily. Resurrected, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives and abides in me. So every time I lay myself down, he resurrects me back up again. Every time I put aside what I want, he resurrects up the promises again. Every time I lay down what I think I need in my life, he resurrects it exactly what I need in my life. Why? Because all of his life becomes all of mine when all of my life becomes all of his. I get all of his life when I sacrifice all of my life. And so I get the resurrection daily. I don't know about you, but I could do with daily resurrections in my life. Yeah, daily resurrections of love, daily resurrections of forgiveness, daily resurrections of understanding people and not getting upset with them. Daily resurrections. But they only come with daily sacrifice. I wonder how many marriages, how many families would be so different if we started doing daily crucifixions of our will and our desires and our wants and started having daily resurrections of God's power in our families and marriages. You live every day as if Christ was crucified yesterday, rose again today and is coming back tomorrow. I love the fact that I can be daily resurrected by just daily laying down my life. You know, there's, there's a story that in the San Francisco school district, the school there decided to do an experiment. It took three teachers in the school and told them, hey, you are the best teachers we have in the school. And what we want to do is we want to get all the high IQ students in the school and we want to create a classroom 
with just all the intelligent kids and with you three as our best teachers. And then we're going to leave the teaching up to you and up to the students. And we want to see how much more you can learn in 12 months than, than just standard teachers and standard students. And so what they discovered is at the end of 12 months that these kids uh, were achieving 30% more than any other student. They were excelling them so much more than any other students. But then the principal calls the teachers into his office and he goes, I've, I have a confession to make to you. Um, you're actually not the best three teachers in the school. We just pulled you out of the hat and you were the first three that came out. And you do not have the most highly intelligent children in your class. We just randomly selected them off the roll. So here's the question. If they were average students and average teachers, how did they achieve above average? They achieved above average because they actually taught as if they were the best teachers in the school. And the kids actually learned as if they were best students in the school because they believed what they were told about the high IQs and the best teaching. They had an as-if view and achieve 30% more. You see, the mind doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's imagined. And that's why as if has so much potential, but it's also why it needs to be anchored to truth. You see, here's the thing. I am a sinner in need of a savior, but according to scripture, I'm also more than a conqueror. Romans 8.37 says, No, in all these things, you are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. So acting as if that is true is the definition of faith. It really comes down to, do you believe what God says about you or do you believe what others say about you? You see, it says there in verse 37 that I'm more than a conqueror, but I don't know about you, but I feel half the time like a failure. I feel half the time that I'm not a good dad that I could be better, that I'm not a great husband, that I could be better, that I'm not a great pastor, I could be better. I, I feel half the time like I'm failing, not succeeding. Yet the scripture says that I'm more than a conqueror, but yet I feel like I'm a complete failure half the time. So, so which is it? Am I more than a conqueror or am I a half-time failure? Are you more than a conqueror or are you a failure? Which is it? Well, here's the thing. We need to, if we're going to have as a faith, take our lead from Scripture, not our lead from our feelings. We must live as if God says who you are is who you are. You are a child of God. You are the apple of his eye. You are a prince and a princess in the kingdom of God. You are a priest of God. You are an heir of God. You are an overcomer. You are a more than a conqueror. And it's time for us to start to live as if rather than what if, or if only, to start living as if. If God says all these things about me, 
then I am more than a conqueror. I may not feel like I am, but I'm not going to live as if my feelings lead my life. I'm going to live my life as if the Word leads my life. And if the Word leads my life, then I'm a child of God. And I'm, an apple, I'm the apple of His eye. And He loves me. And He is for me. And I'm more than a conqueror. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because His Word says it. And all things work together for good for those who love God. And accord according to His purpose. I can be all those things that he says if I only live as if it is true. And I think the church for so long, and I'm not talking about just this, but the church, Christianity on a whole, we really have talked the truth, but we've lived as if it's imaginary for too long. For too long. And we've allowed the imaginary to dictate the truth. In our world. You know, I can't pronounce this guy's name, but I like his quote. I'm going to try and say his name, Johann Wolfgang von whatever. But he says this, treat a man as he is, and he'll remain as he is. Treat a man as, as he can be and should be, and he'll become as he can be and he should be. You treat somebody as they are, they'll stay as they are. If you treat them as they could be, they'll become that. Jesus was the model of that. The Pharisees treated people as they were, but Jesus treated people as they could be. The Pharisees wanted to stone the woman, caught an adultery to death, but Jesus wanted to see her saved and become all the things that she could be. Jesus hung out with the prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors because he didn't see them as they were, but he saw them as they could be. Because nobody knows the God-given potential like the God who gave it to them in the first place. And at some point in your lives, we all need somebody who believes in us more than we believe in ourselves. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that is who Jesus is and that is what Jesus has done. That even though he knows your weaknesses and he knows your failings and he knows the mistakes you're going to make tomorrow and in the future, he says you are more than conquerors. And we have to live as if it's true. Because if we don't live as if what he says is true, then we won't be conquerors, we won't be overcomers, we won't be any of that, we won't have any success, because unless we live by what he says is true, then we're bound to our own thinking and our own feelings and our own abilities. And I don't know about you, friend, but I don't want to do anything in my strength. I want to surrender all of my life to him so that I get all of his life in me. We've got to see past people's problems and see past their personalities. That's, my dad would say, that's what prophets do. Prophets have the ability to see past people's problems and their personalities. And if all we ever do is point out what people have done wrong, you'll probably only ever see them doing that again and again and again. You see, people don't change because of criticism. People change because of encouragement. If you want someone to have courage to live this Christian life as God designed it to be, then you have to encourage them. The word encourage means to put courage into somebody. Criticism will never put courage in 
Criticism just reaffirms the wrong beliefs they have that they're a half-time failure instead of more than a conqueror. Are you with me this morning? I'm not, I'm not talking about making up lies about people. I'm just talking about talking about people the way that Jesus does. I'm talking about talking about yourself the way that Jesus does and then living as if it's true and not just imaginary and not just a hope and not just pie-in-the-sky theory, but it's true because the Bible says that the truth will set you free and the only way to set you free from some of the stuff that you believe about yourself is to start to live as if it's true. And then as you live as if it's true, then it will become true because of what Jesus does in us. John 1.14, I'll finish on this this morning, says this, The Word became flesh, that is Jesus, and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Listen to this, who came from the Father, listen, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus came full of grace, which basically means this. He's going to love you no matter what you do. He's going to love you no matter what you do. And full of truth, which means this. That he's going to tell you honestly. He's going to be truthful with you. The Bible says this, that God is not a man that he would lie. So when he says you're an overcomer, when he says you're a conqueror, when he says, I know the plans I have for you to give you a future and a hope, he's not lying. He's not teasing. He's not putting the carrot in front of the horse. He is telling the truth. But the problem with truth is it only manifests itself in our lives when we live as if it's true. If we would love people the way that Jesus loved them, speak of people the way that Jesus spoke about them, maybe they'll have an as-if moment as well where they start to believe. If you start talking about yourself the way that you should, getting up in the morning and looking in the mirror and going, I'm more than a conqueror today. I'm an overcomer. I'm a child of God. I'm the apple of his eye. I am loved, I am cherished, I am valued. That as I give all of my life to him, he gives all of his life to me, that he is obligated. God is obligated to my life. He is obligated. He is morally and legally obligated. So that means every blessing that he has is a blessing that I can have. And we started talking about that about ourselves and started talking about that about, our, about others and started talking about that like our kids and our wives, and our husbands, and our work colleagues, and our next-door neighbors, and that auntie that everybody has in a family that nobody likes. Maybe, just maybe, they'll have an as-if moment that says, whoa, actually, I can be all those things. Because the truth says, he came filled with grace, and he came filled with truth. Grace to love on you when you didn't deserve it, but the truth to tell you who you really are. Who you really are. And it just struck me so much when I read that story about George Whitfield, where his friend said, hey friend, 
the reason why we have success as actors because we talk about the imaginary if it's true but you in the church you talk about the truth as if it's imaginary i think that's a challenge for us today and there's a massive challenge for us personally that when we read his word and when we see what he says about us it's not imaginary it's truth it's truth I mean, you don't understand about my circumstances and my situations. No, I don't. But it doesn't mean that the truth isn't true. Gravity, if you jump out of plane, will kill you. You see, the truth doesn't change. The truth is always true. And either you can try and... I see the truth in my life like guardrails on the motorway. I can smack into them as much as I like and it's just going to cause me problems and heartache or I can believe them and stay between them and have an enjoyable life. You see, you can't bend truth. Truth bends you. And I just think this morning there's just some people are like, man, I, I'd like to believe that, but I've just, it's imaginary to you. The idea that you're more than a conqueror in life. The idea that you're an overcomer. The idea that God can deliver you from your depression. The idea that God could heal you of all your physical needs. The idea that God could break through in your finances. The idea that God could heal your marriage. The idea that your kids could come back to Christ. You know all the scriptures, but it's just imaginary. It's more like I cross my fingers and hope and blow out the candles and make a wish than it is standing on his word and going, hold on, this is true. And I'm going to live as if it's true. And I'm not going to plead for my marriage. I'm going to prophesy over my marriage. And I'm going to plead for my kids to come back to God. I'm going to prophesy them back to God. Because my Bible says, you and your whole household shall be saved. I'm not resting until the truth is the reality. It's not imaginable. It's not imaginable. It's not imaginable for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting belief. Believing the truth, living as if it's real. Every single person in this room that has given their life to Christ has at one moment believed that what Jesus said has had an as-if moment and gave their life to Jesus Christ. All I'm saying to you this morning is I believe God wants you to live as if every single day of your life no matter what your circumstances say. Bend your circumstance to truth instead of bending truth to circumstance and allow the truth to go from just a wish to just a dream to a reality in your world. Why don't you stand to your feet this morning? I want you to close, everyone just close your eyes just for a moment. Father, I thank you for every single person in this place. God, I hope that this word has not condemned people, but it's encouraged them. Lord, we need courage to live as if. We need courage to live as if faith. Because our circumstances and the world around us show off 
so often throws stuff at us. It makes us feel like this is never going to happen. This is just wild imagination. This is just a dream. But God, we know that your word is true. We know that your promise still stands. We know that you're faithful in what you say that you're going to do. We know that your word goes out and accomplishes everything it sets out to do and never returns empty or void, but actually accomplishes. God, help us, Lord, not to be people that speak the truth as if it's imaginary, but speak the truth as if it's true. Speak the truth as it's true. People here this morning need healing in their bodies. I thank you that your word says, by his stripes we are healed. It's not by his stripes one day. It's not by his stripes, hopefully. It's because of the stripes that he took on his back. You are healed. And we command these bodies in this auditorium to come into line with truth and to be healed in Jesus' name. You don't have the right body to argue with the word of God, which says by his stripes we are healed. And so we release that healing right now. We come into line with your word, Father, and we say that us and our whole household shall be saved. We refuse to believe that your word is not true. And so we prophesy and we speak to unsaved loved ones and we say, Father, pursue them. God, go after them. Holy Spirit, convict them that they would know that you love them, not convicting to condemn because God does not condemn, but convicting to see, man, if I give all my life to Christ, Christ will give all of his life to me. Father, I thank you that you do heal and restore marriages. It's not, it's not a nice idea. It's, it's what you do. You are healer. You are Jehovah Nissi, the banner over us. You are Jehovah Jireh, our provider. You are all the things we could ever need. We don't need anything that's outside of you, but the key to getting all of you is by giving all of us to you. And so this morning, God, I pray for every single person in this place. Lord, as hard as it is sometimes to surrender our whole entire lives and trust you, that we would get an as-if moment this morning. And then we would leave this place determined to live as if it's true. And it's not imaginary, it's true. And I'm going to hold on until it becomes my reality. I'm not going to let go of your truth. Your truth never fails. Your truth never fails.